Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. What we have here is a list of kings. Uh, and let me just kind of walk it through. Although the first king should be God, because God would say, by the way, that they rejected him for Saul. But there are three kings of the United Empire, Saul, David, and his son Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom divides. It's important to note that the ten northern tribes are called Israel, and they are under his commander. And just to make things more confusing, his name is Jeroboam. Yet David's grandson, or Solomon's son's name, is Rehoboam on the left-hand side. Do you see that? So what that means is if you go straight down a list, what that means is it's just someone's son. So, in other words, Rehoboam has a son. Do you see that? The number beside it is the amount of years he reigns. So you have his Rehoboam on the side of Judah, which is where we get the term Jew to this day. That's Judah and Benjamin and some renegade uh, Levites on the south. All the other ten tribes and the rest of the Levites are up north. And it's a bit of a civil war, kind of a Captain America, King Iron Man. Uh, Rehoboam, look, again, can you see how it says he reigns for 17 years? He has a son named Abhia, who reigns for three years, who has a son named Asa. Do you see that? Yes. If it's highlighted in the, in the yellow, or blue, and I'll put it yeah, what that means is that he was, in essence, a pretty decent king. And Asa was a good king. 41 years. He has a son named Jehoshaphat. Do you see that? Yeah. Jehoshaphat is a good king in a lot of ways, but he is a spiritual doofus. He's a jump first, pray later kind of guy, and he winds up in a terrible situation. But ultimately, and if you keep going down the line, notice for the most part, you're just going to see a straight line, except for some things. But let's look at the right side for a moment. Never a decent king. There's 20 kings to the north, or to the south, I'm sorry, 19 to the, to the north. Uh, notice there's a guy, Yerobom. Can you see it there on the right? Mm-hmm. Notice he has a son named Nadav. How long does Nadav reign? Two years. Two years. Yeah, and notice it just says, see that M there? What does that M stand for? Let me do is murder. These are the two separate kingdoms. Yes, this is the separate kingdoms. That line on the left and the line on the right. Exactly. On the left, that's Judah. Yeah. On the north, that's what they call Israel. Captain, <laughs> the capital will be Samaria, but it won't be until the time of Armageddon. Now, so, Yeroboam has ascending the Dov reigns for two years. He is murdered by Baasha. Do you see that? who reigns for 24 years, who has a son named Elah, who reigns for two years as well, and is murdered by Zimri. Can you follow me on that? Yeah. Now, there is a reason why I'm giving you this more than just, hey, wouldn't it be great if you could pass a history test for the Bible? This guy, Zimri, don't forget that name. Here's the situation. Baasha has a son named Elah. He murders him, but the people don't really like him. And after a week, he commits suicide. And he's replaced then by a guy named Omri. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. And Omri is a jerk. But then they all are jerks. We're all jerks, but saved by grace. But these guys are actually like poster children for jerks. And Omri has a son, Ahav. And of course, that's where everything hits the fan. Ahav marries Jezebel. Uh, and by the way, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Jezebel is the queen, well, she's the princess of the area called Sidon. Today it's actually still kind of called Sidon. It's in Lebanon. Now, here's kind of the idea, so you get at least a little bit of her family background. It's always nice to know where this cute little cookie came from. <laughs> Jezebel's dad's name is Ethbaal. And Ethbaal was the high priest of Baal, 
We would say Baal or Baal, but it's B-A-A-L, so we'd be Baal. He was the high priest of, of Baal until the king of Sidon, he sees a weakness, and at Baal, I remind you, the high priest of Baal, murders the king and takes the throne. He's got a daughter. His daughter's name is Jezebel. Y'all with me on that? So Jezebel is the daughter of a murderous high priest slash king. This is something like Shakespeare, to be honest. Yeah. Like in there somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Y'all with me so far? Now, what happens is, is Ahav, who is the king of the north, that's the area today of northern Israel, is trying to talk peace with Lebanon, or Sidon, as we see here. What is the easiest way to guarantee peace? Marry one of their kids. After all, who's going to blow you up? Unless they hate your children. Uh, and that's actually, we can talk about that in politics today. But really, who's going to blow you up if you married one of their kids? So what Ahab does, or Ahab does, is he marries Jezebel, the daughter, the princess of Sidon, which in essence kind of guarantees some kind of peace between the two of them. The problem is it doesn't guarantee any peace with God because she is a work of art. And I mean that in the Tate modern sense, <laughs> which I think you all kind of get. And she is a really wicked woman. And she, the two things she's kind of known for up to this point, by the way, history tells us, and whether history is true or not, who knows, that she was fine. She was a hot mama. And I don't know whether that's true or not. You don't normally marry a princess because she's cute. You normally marry her for political reasons, but nonetheless. But if you trusted the Lord, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Nonetheless, one of the first things she does on her new, print, her new queen agenda is murder all of the prophets of the Lord. That's one of the reasons why Eliyahu goes, Elijah, Eliyahu, uh, goes into hiding. Now, it's just kind of important to note that. So she's known for kind of two things. One is she killed all the prophets of the Lord and instead sponsored 850 false prophets. So imagine 850 prophets are hired by the government, false prophets of Baal and Esher, which in essence was the god of pleasure. Baal, on the other hand, by the way, every god was territorial. It's important to note that. This is one of the reasons why the Syrians had a problem when they're like, oh, they slaughtered us up on the hills, let's take them down in the valley. Clearly their god has a boundary. Well, our God doesn't have a boundary. Isn't that nice? Well, consider this. That Baal is supposed to dwell on Mount Carmel. He's supposed to ride on the back of the bull. And he's also supposed to throw lightning bolts. And you can actually go to the British Museum and actually see pictures of or statues of what people think Baal looks like. And he's riding on the back of a bull, throwing, throwing lightning. That's what he does. So you can imagine when Eliyahu, Elijah, goes up and says, well, let's have a showdown. Let's put your bluffy king to my, your bluffy god to my real god. And remember what he does? He does it, first of all, on Mount Carmel, which means that gives Baal the home court advantage. He slaughters a bull. Think that one through. And he says, whoever answers by fire. Now, how does that happen? What does fire look like when it comes from the sky? It looks like lightning. So he's like, let's give this guy every opportunity to prove himself. And of course he does. But it is important to note that is one of the two things that Jezebel is known for, slaughtering all of the real prophets so she can hire the fake ones. Because you can't really hire the fake ones if you've got the real ones around. Because they tend to be really irritating to you by telling you the truth. Does that make sense? 
The other thing she's known for is that Ahab, her husband, tends to be, by the way, kind of a, well, he's certainly not the man in the house, let's just put it that way. So he goes and he's like, he looks over and he sees this beautiful vineyard and it's right next to his house and he's, and uh, pardon me, I'm, you know, I spend most of my time in California and he just kind of comes up and goes, dude, give me your vineyard. And the guy's like, I can't give you my vineyard. This is like from family to family to family. Go, my great, 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 grandpa farmed on this land and I'm going to give it to you so you can do vegetables with it? Come on. So he goes home and is a chavwid. He goes home and he pouts like a little sissy and he cries and has a little hissy fit. As he has his hissy fit, ultimately Jezebel goes, why are you pouting? To her husband. And he's like, oh, this guy won't give me the vineyard. This guy won't give me the vineyard. She's like, I'll take care of it. So she writes a letter and says, let's have a big feast. Let's call this guy to the center of it all. Let's do some false accusations. And let's just kill him and get him out of the way. So they just killed the guy so they could take his vineyard. But God never calls it Achav's vineyard. It's always Nadav's vineyard even though the guy was murdered and they took possession of it. So this, is, this gal doesn't have a problem killing you to get what she wants. Which I think, you marry a girl like that, you sleep with one eye open. Okay, don't marry a girl that you honestly think just might kill you in your sleep. That's good advice for you there, Jaden, and for me. Um, you know, but if, if, you, if you do marry a girl that could or might kill you in your sleep, Get marriage counseling, and you can talk to Adam and Angel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, now here's the problem. So Ahab already knows how to do this sort of political marriage thing he did in himself. Does that make sense? But they have a daughter, and their daughter's name is Italia, kind of like the airlines from Italy. And Italia, he marries off with the king of the south at that time, which is Jehoshaphat's son, Yoram. And that's important to recognize. And what that means is, then now he, th- he must think he has peace on both sides. guy in the north isn't going to kill you because you married his, his princess. The guy in the south, the king of the south, isn't going to kill you or come to battle against you because your daughter married their son. But now here's the point in it. And just to make things even more confusing, and I want to get into our text, but I have to point out the mess we're in here. As that there's two Jehoshaphats, there's two Ahasias, and there's there's two um, Yehorims or Yorims, and you go, well, which one's which? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we talking about the one in the north? Are we talking about the one in the south? You just don't know which is which, and that's the point. When God's people, literally in a case like this, crawl into bed with people who have no interest in the living God, sooner or later, you can't tell who is who. You should be able to come into a Bible study or into church or whatever, and you should be able to get a dose of heaven. You don't need to get the world there. You can get that anywhere else. We don't need to make it like a pub. What we do need to do is we need to make it something that's like a wardrobe that goes into heaven. So you could get a peek into something and go, man, I want more of that. Because we're trying to escape the rest, the world through lust. That's what Peter tells us. So at this particular point, this is where we're at. <coughs> to kind of put us into perspective. Do you remember that? Remember Zimri? I want to remind you that was the guy who killed the guy. Got a week out of it, felt really bad and killed himself for it. Don't miss that. And of the and Ahab, who's Ahab's dad? Look on that list again. Omri. And just know that this isn't going to last very long here. So here's our context. We're 841 BC, roughly 80 years before the northern captivity, roughly 250 years before the fall of Judah. The north and south at this point seem interchangeable. Evil we have an evil, unrepented king in the north, 
of course, again, 19 kings in the north, not a single one of them decent. The best of the worst is the guy we're going to meet tonight, and you can decide that for yourself. Just north of there in Syria, we have a guy, Ben-Hadad, has been murdered, I remind you, by his commander named Hatiel. So you have... Yeah, Ben-Hadad, yeah, Ben-Hadad. Ben means son of. So, Ben-Hadad, he's, so he's murdered by his commander. So that's up there in Syria. So then we go down to where we are in that. So Hatiel, that's the guy who's actually there, reigns in his place. Ahab's second son, Ahab and Jezebel's second son, Yoram is reigning in Israel. Judah's king is Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram originally, who married Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Natalia, who, by the way, by her influence, kills all of his brothers, so there's no competition. That's always a good, godly thing to do. I'm being facetious. And he walks in the ways of the people of the north as a result of that. We could call Jehoram, in essence, the forfeiter. Because as this happens, Edom and Libna now rebel. In other words, what Israel is losing is all of their property east of the Jordan. All that property that had been given to two and a half tribes before they actually took it in. Jehoram's son, Ahaziah now, the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel, now reigns and follows in his footsteps. The question is, what is it going to take to clean this mess up? What is it going to take to clean things when you can't tell the difference between the church and the world? When you can't tell the difference between God's people that are going to heaven and the world's people that are running to hell and proud of it. Well, turning again, in the north, Hatiel, who murdered, who murdered ben Hadad, that's Syria. Just south of there, we have the king of, of, um, in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, the king in Israel. And then we have the king in the south. That's Hatiel. And that brings us... And by the way, at this point, what happens is that guy in Syria attacks attacks, actually, the northern area. That king, Yoram, tries to fight him, and he's injured. So he goes to the Israel Valley to recover. So the northern king, Yoram, he's hurt, and he's trying to recover. The king of the south, Ahaziah, actually comes over, brings a fruit basket, a plush toy, some roses, that kind of thing, to try to cheer him up. That's kind of the idea. So both of the kings now, buddies, are kind of, he's checking on his buddy who was injured by Syria. Now, if you didn't get any of that, that's okay, because now we're about to get pummeled by the word. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets. Note, by the way, it's the last time you'll read the term sons of the prophets in the Old Testament. And said to them, get yourself ready, take a flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramot Gilead. When you arrive at that place, look there for Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, different than King Jehoshaphat, by the way, just to make things even more confusing, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him <coughs> to the inner room. Then take a flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel, then open the door and flee. Don't delay. Now, think this one through. This starts with Elisha, Eliyahu's, well, his servant, who has now been raised up to take his place. And he calls one of these guys that's a servant. So let's just do this. One of the sons of the prophets. So here is, Elisha says, this is what I need to do. By the way, never, we never get this guy's name. So let's give him a name. Give me a good name. I'll tell you what, Connie, give me a good name. Sorry, we're giving a name to, to everybody. Yeah, we're giving a name to this point to a son of a prophet. Give him, give him a good Jewish name. 
good Hebrew name. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Versus Meher Chalal Chalal Hashvaz, right? Like run to the booty. I don't know. Hello. Okay. So his name's Hello. <coughs> Hello. What's up? And you, 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 I, I got a, I got a job for you. Ready? You're gonna take a vial of oil. And you're going to run and get a commander. Now, the last commander we met, by the way, I remind you, was Sirius' commander who killed his king to take over? Oh, Sirius. Like Cyrus. Sir- well, Syria. Syria. Oh, Syria. Syria's oh, king. So now we're looking at Israel. And he says, all right, this is what I need you to do. You're going to run in and go to the commander, and you're going to pull him aside. It's going to be a private thing. And I want you to pull him aside, and I want you to, to anoint him. And then... Get the heck out of there as fast as you can. Oh, and by the way, say, God's made you king. And then run. Who wants that job? Right? You always be so far. Yeah. Now, it is important to note, ten years ago, backstory, Yahu has already been mentioned. And it wasn't, in that case, Elisha, but it was Eliyah, the first guy. When God was replacing him, remember? When it was time for him to actually hand over the mantle to this guy, he also said, I want you to actually go and I want you to anoint Yahu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. That was ten years ago. Now, whether he did it or not, I don't know. We don't have record of it in Scripture. But we do know he's going to do it now. You with me so far? It is also important to note, he's going to be anointed king before he's going to be appointed king. And it's important to note that God very well may anoint you for a ministry before he appoints you to that ministry. But that's interesting. He already knows where it's going. You just don't. Y'all with me on that? Yeah. So Elisha, by the way, he's a delegator. I think it's important to note that he actually is raising men up. He's not, he's not just the kind of guy that thinks it all should happen because he does it. He's sending a boy to do it for him. And by the way, you're only going to read the term Sons of the Prophets one more time, and it is in a sermon in Acts 3, for what it's worth. Now, it's a private anointing and then an immediate escape. But can you tell me, according to verse 1, where this was going to take place? Do you see that? That happens to be, for what it's worth, the place where Ahab died. I think that's interesting. Because I remind you, his son is ruling now. Now, Senorum is the one who is wounded and recovering. And by the way, do you know where his son was wounded in battle? Same place. So, dad was killed there. The current king, injured there, and now recovering. Y'all with me so far? Yeah. There's one other thing to know. Do you know why they're fighting in remote Gilead in the first place? Because way back when, Ben-Hadad had actually fought against Israel, on many occasions, besieged them twice. But when they engaged in battle, when God brought victory, Ahab, the dad of the current king, spared that king. And the king said, at that time, the king Ben-Hudad of Syria, said, you know all that land my dad took? I'll give it back to you. Three years later, he never gave anything back. And that was when Ahab said, you know what? Remember how he promised to give us that land back? He never did. Let's go fight for it. And the land he was fighting for was a remote Gilead. He would never have to fight there in the first place had he actually taken down the king like he was supposed to, for what it's worth. Okay, so... You ready for it? Now, the question is, when we talk about anointing someone, according to Scripture, any idea how much oil might be used on something like that? 
Do we have any place in Scripture to know what it would look like to anoint someone? Well, that's kind of a nice thought. But in a case like that, it's clearly an act of love. Well, let me ask you, who's the first guy anointed? Solomon? No, nope, it was before him. Before Saul. Yeah, and actually, the first guy anointed was Aaron. Do you remember that? When God anointed him, he's like, we're going to give you these really special clothes. We're going to make them really beautiful for you and set you apart. Then we're going to drip blood on them. Then we're going to anoint you. So if that was to set our precedent, who has their Bible handy? <coughs> there you go, ready? Psalm 133, give me a couple of first verses. When it says, Oh, the best. So they read the first few verses, and the whole point ended up to Shamar's like, what? <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, read the first few verses. Now, I want you to listen to what God compares real Christian fellowship to. Not just Christians being in a room watching football, but what real like this, what real Christian fellowship looks like. And he's going to compare it to two things. He's going to compare it to the water supply of Israel. And he's going to compare it to the anointing of Aaron. So listen to this. And, and actually, go ahead and read the whole song, because it's a, it's a short one anyway. Sure. And while you're at it, close your eyes. And, okay, I'm not asking you to do something weird. I'm not going to touch them. Stay around. But close your eyes and try to picture what that would look like. As far as, tell me what the anointing sounds like to you. Lord, remember that is. Uh, Psalm 133? Oh, sorry. Um, behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. Is like precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending on the mountains of Zion, for their Lord commands his blessing in life forevermore. That was a really long psalm, wasn't it? That was obviously like a pop song, because you know pop songs are really short. If you get it more than three minutes, people are already tired. They're already going to the toilet. Okay, two images. Let me let's go with the second one. It's like what? What do you remember what the second one was? The dew and where does it rest? Hamon. What is Hamon? It's up by It is the tallest mountain in Israel. That's the only place you might be able to ski. Mount Hamon. Exactly. How do you say Hamon? Hamon. Now, it says the dew lands upon Hamon. And when it does, you, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the drinking water of Israel primarily comes from the Sea of Galilee. Over 70% of the drinking water of Israel comes out of the Sea of Galilee. They've actually, there's a salination station now, I believe, near Haifa. Is that true? But the majority, over 70% of the water comes from there. I think this is a beautiful thing to explain to people. What's that? That's how. Well, here's the funny part. Where did that water come from? That water comes from three primary tributaries. Three contributors. Now think of that through. Life comes from three sources into one place. Huh. Sorry, it's a great place to start with Trinity. Yeah, one of them is a place called Banias, which was originally which was actually before that called Panias, named after Pan, like Peter Pan, but Arabs can't say a P, so they say a B. You know, so imagine that. So like what's up, Baba versus Papa? That's the way that works. Before that it was called Caesarea Philippi. Some of you are familiar with that, where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? 
there's, there's a stream that comes from there. There's a place called the Hasbani, which is the place, by the way, where the Lebanese are trying to cut it off to keep it for themselves, which would cut off a third of the water supply. But the third is Machemon. The snow falls on the roof, on the top of Machemon, it melts, and it comes down, and comes into a stream, which ultimately takes you in. Picture Machemon. The dew comes on the top, settles, and drips all the way down the mountain to bring life. Did you get that? And people drink from that. That was our second image. Now what was our first image? Anointing Aaron. What did it look like according to these verses? It was dripping off of his beard and dripping off of the hem of his garment. Where's the hem of your garment? Down at the bottom. When he was anointed, that boy was covered. He was drenched in oil. Did you get that? When we talk about God's anointing on you, it isn't like God went, Now, God did this for two reasons. To beautify, but to set him apart. I'd like you to consider this. We are in the noonday sun in the middle of the desert. And a guy gets covered from head to toe in olive oil. What happens to him? He begins to shine. He begins to reflect the sun. And when you are walking in your anointing, not to get esoteric, you begin to shine. Now, it would be very easy to point out which one the high priest was. Which one's Aaron? The shiny one. Look for the one you got to wear shades to get near. Does that make sense? Now, why am I saying that? Because you're not taking a little thing like this, one of those cute little things we keep in some of our churches that's like, oh, it's time for me to anoint you. <laughs> that if we really came to be anointed, we need to bring a change of clothes. Would that be the same if it says to gather around, if someone's sick, get them in the church to gather around and anoint them praying and that's a really good question because obviously you're not laying hands on them to call them to authority to separate them for a ministry which is the case of all the anointing in the Old Testament so that's arguable but I don't necessarily because we could have used the word baptized by the time we get to the New Testament because that's a Greek word hard to say yeah so you can argue you can argue the point another way and it's a tradition at that point so why drop out of line but for every pastor we've anointed because we don't actually ordain a pastor without anointing them publicly. We always tell their wives or whatever ahead of time because they're going to need to bring a change of clothes or we bring a big bin liner and cover them here. But there's some things you might not know. Do you know olive oil burns, man, in your eyes? You ever got an olive oil in your eyes? Dude, it is seriously a serious thing. <laughs> right. It is serious thing. Okay, y'all with me on that? Now, Hello? Take this vat of oil because you guys have anointed the dew, bro. Y'all with me on this? I don't think we're going to get through two chapters, but let's have some fun. All right, y'all with me? Now you're going to go to the place, by the way, where Ahab died. You're going to go to the place where his son was injured. And you're going to go to the place where his commander is right now, fighting, by the way, the king over on the other side, who, by the way, used to be a commander. But then he killed the king on that side of that series. Y'all with me on that? By the way, I remind you, run in, 
Tell them what you have to do and get out. Is there ever been a point in anyone's ministry where they've had to do the exact same thing? Run in, say what they had to do, and leave? His boss did. His forerunner. When we met the Tishbite, and you can argue over it, but I don't even know what a Tish is to bite. But he's got a Hebrew name. So if that's what we're like, we don't even know if he's Hebrew. Well, he's got a Hebrew name. That's kind of fun. The first time we meet him, he shows up with King Ahab, the current king's dad. Shows up and says, it's not going to be rain until I say so. And then he runs out. That was it. Now that could be argument of why he was so brave or so brief. Maybe saying as little as you do, and maybe this is the point, maybe saying very little and that's it, increases the impact of that statement. When we're dealing with somebody that's, that's being rebellious and they're having a hard time because they're coming up with all of their excuses as people do. We have a tendency to get to the point where you write the same script and it's the same single line every time because this is the issue you need to deal with now. So you deal with this, we're not moving forward. Does that make sense? And whatever the case is. And it's interesting because even when Peter preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 people got saved, God does make this mention. And with many other words, he exhorted him. And I love the fact that what God says is Peter's message was a lot longer than this. But I'm giving you the highlights. Does that make sense? So here's, so, you got your mission? You got your mission to love? Well, let's just make it fun. We'll make Adam Yahoo for the moment, okay? He's Mr. Fast and Furious. Okay? So, verse 4. We're obviously going up right next to you. We're in verse 4. So the young man, servant of the prophet, went to Hromot Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Yahoo said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. So he arose. He went into the house. Now, go this. A bunch of soldiers are sitting outside talking about war wounds, comparing tattoos. Which in Adam's case, that would be quite a, a thing. Since his wife's a tattoo artist. And, and in this case, Shamar shows up. Hey, dude, I need to talk to you privately. Well, I need to talk to you. Which one? With you, man. And the two of you go into the building. Y'all with me? Now, then he arose, went in the house, verse 6, and he poured oil on his head. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I've anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, on all the blood of the servants of the Lord. Because remember how she killed all those prophets and then that guy's vineyard? At the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. By the way, that's the first king of the northern side, I remind you. And like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahia. That was the second, in that sense, second dynasty. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel. And there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. He bailed. God, by the way, has already promised this in 1 Kings 14 and 21. Now, what state is Yahoo in before? Now, I remind you, we're all sitting around. We're the soldiers. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a bullet hole. That's not a bullet hole. You cut yourself, Jenny. Right? And we're kind of all trying to talk about that. And all of a sudden, Shemar shows up and he's like, I need to talk to the commander. And they're like, well, which one of us? We're all commanders. He's like, you, man. So, okay, the two of them go into the other room. And then you see them go in the other room, and then the next thing we see is what? 
Yeah, we see him just run. <laughs> he runs past us. And we're like, yeah, that's a little weird. And then Ammon comes walking out of the tent. What does he look like? He is covered in oil. Y'all with me? So what are we going to ask him? What the heck just happened? Wouldn't that make sense? So, he says, verse 14, Yahweh came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did the madman come to you? And he said to him, Well, you know the madman and his babble. No, so he's just like, What did he do? And he's like, Nothing. Nothing. You are covered in oil. And it's like, I mean, if you're a commander and you can't figure that much out, you really shouldn't be having a gun in your hand kind of thing. And they said, oh, lie. Come on, man, tell us. Tell us now. So he said, thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. And they blew trumpets and said, yeah, who is king? Notice how quickly everyone gets behind him. Not a single one of them goes, dude, that's just messed up. Dude, that's whack. Or, hmm, let me think about that. Apparently, everyone really has a problem with Ahab, so are you with me on that? The guy goes, I don't know. The guy just said, uh, I'm like the new king. And obviously, he's oily, so we kind of get the idea something happened there more than just a little whisper. And we're like, oh, well, then let's do it, bro. We all strap on our swords and off we go. So Yehud, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Yoram. I imagine that's the current king. Yoram had been defending Ramoth Gilead and you know, Israel against Hatiel, the king of Syria. But Yoram had returned to Israel, I imagine, to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hatiel, king of Syria. Yehud said, if you're so minded, well, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it to Israel. In other words, all right, you guys, if that's the case, if God says I'm going to be king, let's not go tell everyone yet. Let's go kill the king before he can rust up for an army. Y'all with me? Alright. So, verse 16. Yahu rode in a chariot and went to Yezreel. For Yoram was laid up there. And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, I remind you, had come down to see him. Remember, the king of the south came up and said, Hey, dude, you're okay? Let's feel better, man. Now a watchman stood at the tower of Inye in Yezreel, and he saw the company of Yahu as he came, and he said, I see a company of men. And Yoram said, Well, Get a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say he's at peace. This would be a common thing. You see a group of guys coming out your city. I imagine the king's in there recovering. And they're like, well, they're riding kind of furiously. So let's send someone out to make sure everything's cool. And you can imagine they're kind of like, dude, we cool? And that's what they're doing. So the horseman went to meet him, verse 18, and thus says the king is at peace. And Yahweh said, what, all, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, well, the messenger went to him, but he's not coming back. Guess what? First messenger joined the army just like all the other boys. Everybody in this story seems to be jumping ship and joining Yehu. Does that make sense? Well, with a name like Yehu! You know? You know, man, what I get out of this is the guy, the way he's writing, I get Yehu! Because that's what's happening here. So we sent a second horseman out to him. Okay, well, it looks like we lost the first guy. And he came to them and said, Thus says the king of peace. And Yahoo answered, what, are you, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Guess what? He jumped ship too. Now guess what Yahoo has? He has commanders. Those are the best fighters on your army. That's his little group of mercenaries and the two messengers with him now. But at this point you kind of go, oh, this isn't good. So the watchman, I remind you, that's the guy in the tower. He goes, well, we sent our two guys out, but they never really came back. And he went up and said, you know, he went up to them and he's not coming back. 
But notice what it says in verse 20. And the driving is like the driving of Yahu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Don't miss this. Literally, in Hebrew, it drives with madness. In other words, apparently, Yahu has a reputation. He is the original Fast and Furious. He's like, dude, this guy is mental behind the wheel. He's like baby driver. And, and he's like, I don't know. And it's like, I can't see who it is. But whatever, it sure drives mental like that Yahoo guy. So he was kind of known for it. Now, let me say this, because I really want to... Now, I'm looking around the room, and I can't say this for everyone. But I'm guessing of JJ. And I'm definitely saying that. I, I know that already of Angel. The rest of you are going to have to decide that yourself. I'm kind of going with Connie, too, at least. Some of us are this kind of way with life. Remember how each person kind of had their own kind of icon for their life? Their little thing... Like Athia that fell through the lattice, but then tried to go with Beelzebub because his whole life was about, we might say, Athia the flimsy, because he leaned on the wrong thing and it never held him up. And that was his whole story. Was he should have sought God, he would have held him up, but instead he sought the flimsy. And that would have been easily the case. Remember the last king, how he lost all those places east of the river? We could call him the forfeiter. His whole life will be sort of summed up with this. The dude lost us a lot of land. But this guy, we'll know as the furious. Now, again, this isn't all of your story, but I want to warn you for the furious. Those are the guys who really only have one speed, and it involves the pedal always on the floor. The world changes through people like that. I know it changes through others, too. Don't get me wrong. It's not exclusive to that. But if you're going to be furious, you better be furious inside and out. And this is what we're going to see as the tragedy of Yahweh. When God says you're going to clean things up, he doesn't have a problem with that. And he is going to kill and kill and kill again. Because he is furious. And the way he drives is the way he lives. Hot, hard, and heavy. The question is, if you're going to be that full on, are you going to be that full on in your personal walk with God? Because you know how to full on it in front of other people because that's just who you are. But full outing it when no one's looking is another story altogether. Does that make sense? So listen. Your, my reminder when verse 21 is still recovering, so he's beaten up pretty bad. He said, Make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And Yoram, the king of Israel, and Achatiah, the king of Judah, went out. How fortunate for Yahu, both of the kings are hanging out together on their little ride. Each one in his chariot. And they went to meet Yahu. When he met him on the property of Naboth the, the Israelite, stop. What property is that of Naboth? That's the vineyard that Jezebel killed the guy for. Who I remind you, what is Jezebel compared to the sick king, the, king, the recovering king? Can you do the math? It's his mom. Now it's simpler than it looks. It was his mom. Who, by the way, he walks just like mom. He's acting like mom. <laughs> so should it should it appropriate to us that they would wind up there? They went from the place where dad died to the place where mom killed someone to get a vegetable garden. And it happened when Yoram when Yoram saw Yehu, and I remind you, Yoram was looking at his commander. And he said, "Is it peace, Yehu?" And Yoram says, "What peace?" As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. 
Dude, your whole household stinks. Then Yoram turned around and fled, and he said to Ahaziah, I imagine the king of the south, Treachery! Ahaziah! And Yehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Yoram between his arms. And the arrow came out at his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. Let me ask you something. Have you ever bow hunt? I have. It comes with being American Indian, or Native American, if you will. I don't have a problem with any of the terms you want to use. Okay, anyways, it's important to know that the, the, what you have now, a traditional arrow is very different from what they have today. Today, it's basically a cross-shaped razor blade is what they have. But it goes into an animal, and uh, it stays in the animal. And that is a much sharper, swifter, thinner arrow. You with me on that? All right, James, stand up for a second. Turn to face. You turn to face me now. All right. Where is his, where is your heart? In the center. It's in the center. Right. It's right here. That's the problem. Okay. So. Adam, can I borrow you for a second? Stand to his, stand over here if you would, please. And I want you to put your right hand where you believe his heart to be. Good. Now, that means take your left hand, where everyone can see, and point where that arrow would have to go through his back to get him in the heart. What would it have to go through to get to his heart? Spine. Or his ribcage. Thank you. Go ahead and be seated, guys. Thank you. Do you know how hard it is to go through bone? The reason I say that is, how furious was that arrow? This was not a weaky boy. This boy threw an arrow down and took, like, obsidian or slate, that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff you actually circumcise with people back then. They get sharp, but it's rock. And rock's heavy, but it also is gets chunky, and it has to go through all of that. Dude, this is some serious archery here. This is serious archery. Are you with me on that? Mm-hmm. And it says in this that uh, <clears throat> verse 24, he had drew his bowl with full strength. He was full on. He was full on in this shot. He shot him through the back and it went through the front and came out of his heart and he sank down in his chariot. He died in his chariot. You with me on that? Then Yehu said to Bidkar. Who's Bidkar? Yeah, what's interesting is we do know he's his captain. Bidkar clearly comes from Tottenham. The only reason I say that is Bidkar means stabber. What does his name mean? <laughs> you it for yourself. <laughs> just saying, just saying. Dude, his captain's name is Stabber. They just pick him up, throw him in the track in the field of the book the Jezreelites, or the Israelites. For remember when you and I were writing together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid his burden upon him? Now, what does that tell you about Yahu? That Yahu was a commander all the way back when the king's dad was king, when Ahab was king. You remember when his dad was king and we were actually there? You know, just you, little Stauber, and me. Yahoo! 
Remember now when we ran together, and remember how God said this was going to happen, by the way? 1 Kings 21. You see all of that? Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord. I will repay on this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore, take him and throw him in the pot of ground according to the word of the Lord. Y'all with me on that? Who just died? Um, Yeah, the king of which? Yeah, the king of Syria. I'm sorry, the king of Israel. King of the north. King of the south, name is Ahaziah. Oh, verse 27. Now, when Ahaziah saw the king of Judah, the king of Judah saw this, what did he just see? He just saw the king of the north get shot from the back through the spine into his heart. He fled, wouldn't you? He fled by the road of Bethagam. So Yehu pursued him, and he said, shoot him also in the chariot. Dude, I'll tell you what, don't shoot him in the head, don't shoot him in the heart, shoot him in the chariot. I'm not going to but that man was really hurt. <laughs> so they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblain. Now he fled to Megiddo when he died there. What did Ahaziah do to deserve to die? Death by association. Hear me on this. I have a general saying, and I hope you embrace it, but this is my saying, so it's not scripture. But if you can't change it, leave it. If it's ungodly and you can't change it, get out. Because if you can't change it, and it's ungodly, it will start changing you. And I watch this happen over and over and over again. Be a light, be a light, and be a light, and pray for change. We are called to impact, not imitate. No. He died in Megiddo. First, by the way, you're probably aware that the hill of Megiddo, hill Yudus Har. So the hill of Megiddo is Har Megiddo, which is where we get the term Armageddon from. That valley is where that's going to take place. By the way, the place where all of this tremendously compromised God's people have become indistinguishable from the world. Interesting. And the servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb of his fathers, the city of David. In the eleventh year of Yoram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. Are you with me so far? Who have died now? What what two people have just died? Yeah, both kings. The king of the north and the king of the south. Does that make sense? We might say the king of Scotland and the king of England. There's kind of our idea. Now, the clearly, Jezzy's aware of this. Jezzy Jezebel. Her husband's just been murdered. Well, actually, her son's just been murdered. It says, When Yahu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head. The idea of it is, you know, little braid. Maybe she put in a weave. Something like that? And looked through a window. <laughs> now, she's like, her husband's dead, died in battle. Now her son just got taken down. And what does she do? She dolls herself up to look in the window. Yoo-hoo! Yahoo! Get it with me? She's dolled herself up. Now, I love the fact that it says she put pain in her eye, on her eyes. And I'm like, there, you know, I don't need to develop it much, but I will say one thing I heard from an old Baptist preacher named J. Vernon McGee. And you know, I guess when you get old and you're from the South, you can say really funny things that probably other could get you sued otherwise if you're someone else like me. But he was doing some kind of sermon once and some gal came up to him and said, Sir, are you saying it's a sin to wear makeup? And he said, Ma'am, 
For you, it's no sin at all. <laughs> There's no way I could get away with that. There's no way. <laughs> Y'all with me? So he so cares yeah, who he's just killed the king of the north, which is her son. He's killed the king of the south. Who by the way, if you think about it, it's kind of her son in law, because that guy married. And with that then, or at least grandson. And then Yahoo entered the gate. She's like, You here? And she said, Is it peace Zimri? Murderer of your master? Okay, look back at your form. Which one was Zimri? God, it makes this Yes! <coughs> Don't miss that. She's like, Remember the last time a guy killed a king to become king? Remember what happened? He made it a week and then he killed himself. How is that for a little mental game for a little Miss Pinky face? <laughs> so you know he answers that? He looks up at the window. He sees her and he says, Hey, why don't you come down here, cutie? And all he does it this way. He looks and says, Who's on my side? And there are two eunuchs in the window, apparently. Now, they may have been mighty, mighty men when she got a hold of them ahead of time, but she takes that. Anyway, so, you know, she's on my side. And they said, oh, we are. And he goes, throw her down. So the two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, throw her down. And they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall. Why God had to tell me that, I'm still not really sure. And on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. She really is feeling run down by the end of it. And when he, okay, so get this. He's got, he's got, it's him. He's leading it because he's the commander. He's got all, he's got Stabby next to him, I remind you. He's got the rest of those other guys who were sitting around the table, remember that strapped up their swords? And he's got the two messengers, and they're all going to take turns running over her. So it was, in essence, a hit and 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 run. Now, this is the case by the time we're done, that girl's been charioted. And she's been charioted big time. Traveling around front, it says, and when he had gone down, verse 34, he ate and drank, because killing all of that royalty, it makes you build up quite an appetite. So he said, now go now and see that accursed woman and bury her, for she's a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found none, nothing other than her skull and the feet and the palm of her hands. And this is the emblem for her. Not a broken lattice, not a couple of things that, you know, not lamb that was forfeited. But for her, it was her head, her hands, and her feet. And might I say... This was the problem of Jezebel. She spent her whole life putting everybody under her headship, under her hands, and under her feet. But in the end, she died under the feet of the new king. For what it's worth. Therefore, they came back and told him, said, This is the word of, of the Lord. And what she spoke by Elia the Tishbite, saying on this plot of ground, The dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. Why was there nothing left? Because the dogs had a little bit of a feast there. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be refuse on the surface of the field at the plot of Israel, and they shall and they shall not you know so that they uh, shall not say here lies Jezebel. And it's like you can't say here lies Jezebel when there's no Jezebel left to say here lies Jezebel. Now, as much as I really want to go into the next chapter because it's the warning, I want us to take the warnings we have at the beginning of this because up to this point, he's kind of done what he's been told to. Which, to be honest, very few of us, perfectly none of us, would be quick to volunteer for. 
But when things get so drastically blurred in the lines, God causes drastic things to take place. Now, I don't think God's going to take any of you and say what you need to do is shoot the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury. I don't believe that's what God's going to tell you to do, and I think that that would be really weird, especially considering where God calls us. But I will say this, that God does call us to come out and be separate. God calls us to be salt and light. And I want to warn you, no place is a dark place if you're there. Because no one takes a light and puts it under a bushel. That's just dumb. Hear me on this. Light, according to John chapter 1, it says light has come into the world and the darkness could not. And then you have this word understand or overcome it or whatever. The term in the Greek is katalambano. Kata means according to, lambano means to grab a hold of. It's a wrestling term. The idea of it was, is that you're probably familiar that the Greeks and then thus the Romans, because they were good at pulling everything, kind of like the British Museum, they'd just take their own thing and adopt it for themselves. And guys would shave themselves, cover themselves in grease, and then they would wrestle. Oh, they would strip themselves naked too. And, you know, this is one of the reasons people were like, this is indecent. And to that I say, yeah, it's really indecent, and I wouldn't buy tickets for it. But, nonetheless, and the idea is, now it isn't like you could just grab a hold of a guy, you really had to get a good hold on him because you've got clothes that kind of pop right out of you because he's all greased up. It's the term, by the way, that's used for being above reproach. Being well greased, for what it's worth. But now, we don't usually use those terms because let's pray that none of you are like into naked mud wrestling. You know, that's really something you would need to repent of. <laughs> but let me say it this way. If we were to put it in a common vernacular today, if you've ever fought competitively. You know, there's two ways you win. Well, three if the guy taps out. One is you just knock him out cold. And in which case, it's pretty clear who the winner is. But most fights, you're probably aware of the fact, don't end that way. Most fights end with points. And the way that they end with points is how you land a kick or a punch, or whatever the case is. And the idea is every time you land a serious punch, where you're not just braiding someone, but you're connecting, you get a point for it. Light came into the world, but darkness couldn't land a punch. It couldn't get a single point on darkness. I'm sorry, on the light. Darkness didn't stand a chance. Here's the point darkness will never, never be the overcomer of light. It will only be the absence of it. Darkness doesn't get so beautifully dark or horribly dark that it over that it wins. You say, well what about black holes? It's still the absence of light. So when people say, London, isn't that a dark place? Just turn them and say, not anymore. <laughs> because Jesus is the light of the world and the light of the world lives in you if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid of the darkness. It flees. You don't. Don't put yourself under a bushel. Don't hide it. And if you can't impact, if you can't make a difference, go where you can. My wife, her dream was to work at this Christian record label back in the day. And it was like the artists were artists she loved. And it was just, it was her dream to work at this place. And she finally got the job. I was doing studio work here and there for a handful of labels at the time. And I remember going in there and seeing her. And she just seemed like all the joy was gone, and he would think this would really make her happy. 
So she was in a situation where the particular label she was working for was just as unscrupulous, <coughs> just as deceptive as the, the secular label she had worked at before this point. And she was really troubled. She thought this would really be different. So we prayed, and she sought to make the difference. And she sought to make the difference. And she sought to make the difference. And what was clear is she was making no difference, nor headway at all. So the only thing left for her to do, and she had made it clear, her problems. Her problems were not, I don't like the coffee, we need to get there something that's more French roast. It was nothing like that. It's like, dude, you were lying about how much product went out. You were lying to artists about what they sold when they when they sold much more than this, so you're not paying out royalties. You're lying to records, you know, you're to radio stations back in the day, telling them that these people are much more than they are. Yeah. And they go, This is not Christian. This is supposed to be a ministry. You know the sad part was? The guy that was actually running the label was a super, super gifted evangelist. But once he got into business, he was not the guy for the job. So she told him, and she told her boss, and she told her boss, and she told her boss, and he's like, yeah, 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 we need to work on this. And finally, the only thing that was left, and this is where this all came from, was we were seeking a word from the Lord, and the Lord said, if you can't change it, leave it. And I'm like, do you love it enough to leave it? And she finally said, you know what? I can't be a part of this. I cannot be a part of this thing that's calling itself Christian that is so completely opposite. As a result of that, it created quite a stir, as you might imagine. My wife's quite a trend center. And there were people who left shortly after her that were never brave enough until someone could take that first step. Shortly after that, the label would get sued, claim bankruptcy. And many of the people who still worked there were actually being charged with crimes. She left it in time. Now look at me. I just don't want to see you get dragged down. But for those of you who are full honors, which, by the way, you have to hold me accountable. you got to know I'm one of those people. I know that doesn't surprise you. But you need to be full on on the inside first. Because in a place like that, the world doesn't have a problem being full on with no apology for telling us that we need to be much more cautious. Have you learned that? It's like, don't you talk to me about Jesus, but I can preach whatever I want to do. And you need to be tolerant of all of my things by agreeing with me. That's not tolerance. I can't tolerate <coughs> something I agree with. I have to tolerate what I don't. Yeah. And here's my prayer for you as we begin this. What things have so intermingled in your life that you can't tell the God part anymore? That have now become so cloudy blurred in the line that God's just going to have to send a Yahoo in. Do you know what his name means? God himself. How's that for a fun name? Now I wouldn't say he lives up to that name in a lot of ways, but understand he's an instrument of judgment and God is he. Because wouldn't it be cool? Here's the sad part. You know the things that we normally taint with the world are things God gave us to glorify him? Things that we shine at. So that the world can see, and people are like, well, Christians aren't that good at that thing, or that thing, or that thing. When there are actually Christians out there that are so compromised, they would be really, they'd recognize Christians do it better. We're just not willing to be the light we're called to be. So what if God sent a Yahoo to us today? 
and started ripping things out and taking things down until they could get cleaned up and being and the proper lines could be built up. Would be we would be willing to go, well that sounds horribly drastic. Probably not as drastic as a guy driving furiously and killing kings. But that's probably where it starts is the kings are the decision makers. I'd like you to consider that as we pray. Would you pray with me?